in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Destin Melbarnes, Nathan Lutz, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies and gentlemen, to the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. I am your host, Russell Guest, and joining me today is my good friend and co-host from right here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Mr. Nathan Lutz. How you doing, sir? I am so excited to talk about a movie that speaks to you and I, Russell, so deeply in our architectural hearts. And Brian, you love this movie, but I don't think you know what you've unleashed. <laughs> I, I was actually really happy Russell picked this one because I knew he'd be feasting on the scenery. Yes, yes. And if you, as you can't tell, uh, we also have with us Mr. Brian Fry from Spokane, Washington, our other co-host on with us. So it's a dealer's choice here. Brian, you've selected the international today, but uh, tell the folks at home, how are you doing today? I'm doing wonderful, Russ. All right. Let's start off by what was your favorite college years movie as just like a way of breaking the ice here? Uh, Nathan. I didn't watch a lot of movies in college, but I discovered that there was a certain category of movie that I really liked working to, which were sort of guilty pleasure movies. So, for example, discovered the Stargate franchise, and in particular, Stargate. Just great background movie, good schlock, wonderful. Is that a guilty pleasure? It is absolutely a guilty pleasure, I consider it. I'll back you up on that then, or I'll, I'll join in with the helping of guilt for myself then, because I also enjoy that one. Now, Brian, what about you? What was your favorite college years movie? I can't call it my favorite, but just to, to have a shout out to uh, John Flack, who's uh, been a host on the show as well. Uh, he was my roommate freshman year. And the number of times that, you know, to crash out at night, we would put on Gladiator just because at the end of the movie, the when the DVD opening scene or the 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 menu screen would play it would play the prettiest part of now we are free and it was a great song to sleep to so we would play gladiator which is basically a bloodbath movie uh (laughs) full of violence and then we, we did it because eventually when the movie ended and the credits rolled and it went back to the the opening um menu that song would play all night so that was your sleep therapy tape like your little jonathan stevenson track like yeah kill 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 all beautiful song and sleep so do you need to add like a like a relaxing australian accent over top you're now getting sleepy relax your eyes it's like you could play the end of alien and get a really nice pleasant tune yeah I've got to. I got to figure out what the uh, the song is for the Alien uh, menu screen. Oh, I don't know about the menu screen, but if it's the credits, it's uh, Howard Hansen Symphony Number no. Two, the slow movement. Okay. Mysteries of the universe have been unlocked just now for Fry, but uh, it is one of the greatest symphonies and also the cheesiest one. My best college years movie is probably Wedding Crashers. Put it in heavy rotation. Put it in, laughed a lot, had a good time, and it pleases a lot of different friends of mine as well as my family. So. Went back to this one a lot. Yeah, different type of movie. Nathan had the science fiction. Brian had your dramatic period piece action. And I've got the comedy there. So what's the last movie you saw, Nathan? I just, for the first time since the pandemic started, stepped into a theater and I watched Shang-Chi. And did you have fun? I had a lot of fun. That's uh, This is a movie full of really great action scenes, packed 
end to end a lot of the time and cool creatures and cool effects and pretty cool characters. So strong recommendation from me. Good. Good. Brian, what about you? Uh, I went back and rewatched a Netflix original with Jake Gyllenhaal called Velvet Buzzsaw. And uh, it is it is quickly becoming a favorite of mine in my like I want to watch a kind of a a mind screw movie. Um, it's a suspense thriller about an artist uh, or about a, uh, a art seller dealer that finds a bunch of paintings that a reclusive artist who died in her building leaves, and he's trying to destroy them because if you view the paintings, you quickly become psychotic. Wow, I'm intrigued. That does sound better. Yeah, I highly mm. recommend it. It's on Netflix, so free is always awesome. Uh, obviously, you're paying for Netflix, but uh, Jake Gyllenhaal's really, it's an interesting character for him, much like his character in Nightcrawler. So Ooh. if you enjoyed Nightcrawler, I think you would probably enjoy this one as well. Yeah. How, and if you enjoyed his character in Prince of Persia, then this is not your movie. <laughs> this is not your movie. Um, that sounds interesting. And my last movie that I did was Lincoln Lawyer from 2011. I'm just, I'm always taking in 2011 movies in preparation for our top 10 movies of the year from 10 years ago coming up. So I picked up a 2011 movie and uh, it stars McConaughey. And it's, that's a very good, very good, very interesting movie. I had no, no appeal to me initially, but I'm kind of glad we have this little exercise where we go back and pick up films from 10 years ago, because uh, I'm glad I got to this one. Yeah. And uh, I don't drive it just to drive it. I drive it because of lack. He does drive a Lincoln. The the fun thing about that movie is it was right when Matthew McConaughey was beginning to make his transition from the rom-com guy to a more serious actor. So that was kind of one of his uh, segue films. Yeah, for sure. Now, today, as I mentioned, we're doing The International. This is from 2009. It stars Clive Owen, Naomi Watts, Armin Muller-Stahl, Brian F. O'Brien, which that's a great name, by the way. It uh, sounds ridiculously Irish. And... Pollock Billinger. Those are awesome names. Those are like, I enjoyed reading all of those names. They sound like some German guy and some Irish guy need to get in a fight in a pub. And uh, I want to side with Brian F. O'Brien on that one. Yeah. And this is a movie that had a pretty good showing from people from Germany and where a lot of it was filmed. Yeah, for sure. And so this, this, this comes out in 2009, as we mentioned, it grosses two point, sorry, $25.4 million. Uh, it was budgeted for $50 million. So it lost a lot of money. Um, so it uh, places in the box office at 101 on the box office. So it just misses the top 100 that year. It comes in behind The Fourth Kind, and it comes one ahead of Aliens in the Attic. And the number one movie that year was Avatar, and it made considerably more money than all of these movies we've discussed here. So, But IMDb gives The International a 6.5 rating. The Rotten Tomatoes critics give it a 58%. And the audience score is shockingly cold here. The Rotten Tomatoes audience score is only 37%. No awards to be told. Ooh. Yeah, so there's a lot of difference there. Uh, Brian, had you seen this movie before? What was your background with it? Uh, yeah, I probably can't tell you exactly where or when I saw this movie the first time, but it hooked me really, really quickly. Uh, it quickly became one of those movies that I can just toss on anytime as a as a good suspense thriller. Um, I, you know, it's funny, this movie is probably one of the ones that really leads me to give movies that don't have good ratings a chance, because I think that in the realm of should this win an Oscar? Absolutely not. But I found it to be a highly addictive film. Yeah. And I remember you put this 
on your top 10 movies of 2009 episode. And I it was on my queue. I just never got into it. This is my first time to it. So I'm going in as a new viewer on this one. And I had a good time with it. And just simply putting the Guggenheim in New York on the cover, I was instantly like, what's going on there? So as an architect, I was I was uh, I was definitely lulled in by the eye candy of the building there. And oh, man, there was so much eye candy to be feasted upon, as uh, Nathan alluded to earlier. So I had a good time with this, and I feel like it's a little bit underrated. It's not it's not a perfect movie, but there's a lot of things I did enjoy with this movie. I don't know that it would make my top 10 from 2009 looking back at it now, but I'm certainly happy I watched. Nathan, what about you? This was the first I had heard of it and the first I had watched it, but man, like you, Russell, this is a surprising gem to discover. I think that this movie is complicated. It's got a detailed plot. If even if it doesn't have a lot of sort of larger sweeping elements or ideas necessarily, but man, the details of the scenes are wonderful. And there are some actions that are action scenes in this movie that are just real all timers. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I, I said it might not make my top 10 movies for uh, for my mo- my movie list in 2009. I'll tell you what it would make my list for top 10 movies for architecture. Yeah. So now, Brian, do you feel like this movie's holding up over time? Uh, this movie was loosely based on a true story. Uh, I say loosely because they basically fabricated most of the story. Uh, there was a bank that was doing this kind of stuff uh, in Europe, and that's kind of where they got the idea for the film. So, uh, yes, I don't think there's anything in it uh, or anything about it that I look at and say, yeah, this doesn't hold up, except maybe the metal detectors at the Guggenheim. Okay. Yeah. And with that, there will be spoilers that lie ahead. So if you have not seen The International, we highly suggest you check it out. Then come back and listen to the rest of this podcast. We'll be back after these messages. Welcome to the Flashback Flicks Retro Movie Podcast. I'm Ricky. I'm Grayson. And every week we review a movie from the past and reflect on things we missed, things we loved, and things we want to see again. Yeah, because we believe any movie worth watching is worth watching again. So if you like films, friendship, and a lot of callbacks, I mean, just so many callbacks, then subscribe on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever RSS feeds go for like-minded, movie-loving individuals. Like you. What happens when two modern film fans go back and rewatch all the old classic films from yesteryear to see if they hold up? You get the Classic Film Jerks podcast. Find the Classic Film Jerks podcast on all the major platforms. All right, we're back, and this is your final warning. There will be spoilers that lie ahead, so if you have not seen The International, you are going to want to watch it and then come back and enjoy us. We will be spoiling it now. And on that note, Nathan, for those who haven't seen The International since 2009 and need a refresher, do you want to give us a rundown of what happened? Lewis Salander was rejected from Scotland Yard for going off book after failing to nail down the Luxembourg International Bank, IBBC, for arms dealing. He finds his way back onto the case at Interpol, but when his partner dies in Berlin of an apparent assassination, he convinces assistant Manhattan DA Eleanor Whitman to help clear the red tape. All they have is a name to investigate, a family of arms dealers known as the Calvinis. But when they meet with Calvini Sr. in Milan, he is assassinated too, and a fall man gets framed. Whitman figures out that there were two snipers, and Salinger links one footprint to a prior IBC case. After some consultation, they identify it as being part of a custom foot brace made in New York. They travel to Manhattan and work with local detectives to track the international assassin down, eventually finding him at the Guggenheim with a senior member of the IBBC bank. 
but they have walked into the middle of an assassination of the assassin. The bank wants to cover its tracks. Barely escaping alive, Salinger interrogates Wexler, ex-communist and consultant for the IBBC, who tells him that to take the bank down, he will have to go off book. The system makes everyone involved, everyone culpable, so nobody will go down. But on his own, Salinger can give the Calvini heirs a secret, that the bank had their father killed to strongarm them into selling weapons to the IBBC. The Calvini's retribution is swift and decisive, but in an ensuing meeting, Salinger fails to obtain evidence of the bank's culpability and finds himself pointing a gun pointlessly at one of the bank's many heads. Just as he realizes the futility of what he is trying to do, one of the Calvini sons kills the manager himself, thanks Salinger for helping them connect the dots, and Salinger realizes that nothing he did or sacrificed really meant anything in the end. After it all, the system won. Yes, and as they said in uh, Burn After Reading, what do we learn here? Nothing. <laughs> uh, the bankers are the villains in the international, and they're brokering arms deals, they're selling missiles, and they're assassinating anyone who gets too close. They topple governments, and they tip the scales in the world, all around the world in their favor. Uh, it's a pretty interesting idea, and po- quite honestly, something that could totally happen. So as Brian mentioned, this has got a little bit roots in reality. Brian, do you like all this? I can't. I don't know if this is espionage so much, uh, but this type of uh conspiracy that that we're running down here yeah that's one of the things i like the most about this movie was all the the moving pieces to both the the new york da's office and salinger kind of finding each other to to really put uh this grudge that he's got going uh, this or i should say obsession he's got going to rest uh so you have the the quote unquote good guys and where you know they're obviously willing to cut corners and bend the law a little bit because you hear them reference it throughout the the film where they're like oh you know screw the bureaucratic red tape and oh you know that who gives a crap about you know this piece that we have to do so they're clearly you know infringing on some rights themselves in order to get this this big bad and um, so it's really you know when I watch this movie, it's really a it's a David versus Goliath kind of thing, given what everyone's working with. But it's also, a, you know, you could make a point to say who's the real bad guy here or are they both bad? Hmm. Uh, yes. And I, I want to just give it credit for leading a nice sequence of events. So often a movie of this nature will relatively quickly land on where it's going and it spells itself out straightforward, like maybe 20, 30 minutes in. It's very clear who you're chasing and what they're doing. And the rest of the 90 minutes or so of the movie, you know, will unfold with action scenes, etc. This movie is perhaps a little more mm, interesting to turn the pages on because you don't know what's going to happen next. It's not straightforward. You're finding breadcrumbs and those breadcrumbs lead to something else. And it's 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 kind of all revolving around this assassin that that they hired. And that's kind of the secondary piece. And uh, this is only the tip of the iceberg for this organization, but they're so good at covering their tracks. Uh, even somebody who's dedicated his life to chasing them down, he can't find them. So it's a good villain character, as you pointed out, Brian, like this this big conspiracy. Um, but I also like that the individual trail that this investigator is taking. Nathan, what is your take here on the investigation side of this plot? So I really enjoy that this movie doesn't make any attempt to hide who the real villains are, really. You are most interested in 
how are our heroes going to get from A to B because, or A to Z, because at the first position of the movie, they just seem so, so outmatched. Everybody is climbing up. They very quickly demonstrate that the bank has the capacity to totally rewrite history, where at one point they think they've got something. They think that they have proof that, oh, this assassin must have tracked down these people, but then they get to the bank and the bankers say, oh yeah, you know, it's really unfortunate that uh, they released those logs early. We found out that the crash actually happened this early. So nobody who assassinated this one person could have assassinated this other person. How weird. And you just feel the whole movie like you are just totally, totally swimming upriver. And so finally, when it gets to the point where Wexler at the very end, this banker who represents the old guard and has all this gravitas and has all these life experiences finally tells them, hey guys, the system's going to win. There's nothing you can do. It feels like he might be right. And I really like that this movie did that. Oh, they they made it very clear after the interrogation scene. Um, you know, there is no really winning this. Like, even if you do succeed in doing your absolute best to bring down Scarson, who's the the the, the, pro, the bank CEO, he's like that next per. It's next man up. You know, this is not something new. You're not reinventing the wheel here. You're not, you know, going to do anything that affects real change. All you can do is scratch the itch you currently have with the body that the face lives on right now. And I think that that's maybe one of the reasons I like this movie so much is I feel like that's kind of, you know, that's life. I mean, you you can only affect so much change yourself and and broad sweeping change isn't something that that comes easily. So, you know, you've got the vengeance piece, you've got the I'm I'm succeeding at what I set out to do. But in the end, it's fundamentally futile, just like, you know, they bring up in so many films. And they point out to or foreshadow that when his superior reprimands him at one point and says, we're not in the doling out of justice business. We are in the business of investigating. And that's where your job stops. And he does tip like he becomes so involved. He becomes thirsty for justice. Or as it's one point put to him, he develops a, bl- a bloodthirst. Uh, like there's he's put a face to something he hates so much. And to your point, Brian, it's really just the flavor of the moment. Somebody will sit on the top of this hill, and it uh, it takes the whole movie for him to realize that. It's a little depressing, but I mean, like I said, something is eerily truthful in that. I think that he does get some form of moral compensation at the end when the Calvini son's assassin finally kills Scarson. He wasn't him that pulled the trigger, so he didn't cross that line, even though there are numerous lines he did cross. Um, I think one of the... One of the things that I'm happy they left out of the movie, but I'm also curious, like if this had been a book series instead of uh, just a a one-off film, um, I would have been interested in what was next for Louis Salinger because he didn't... Oh, he fired. He didn't go go full dark. Uh, I doubt he still has a job. Um, But I'm just curious, like what, what amount of peace did Scarson's killing give him? I mean, they basically cleaned house at the upper echelon of the bank. But then as you see in the newspaper clippings during the credits, they bounced back within, what was it, a quarter? Like they went down for like one quarter and then the new CEO like bounced them back on top. So 
yeah, there, there's that futileness. So I don't know what he eventually got out of this. I don't know if he just ends up being an embittered old man somewhere, but, um, that was, that's one question I've always had is, is what would have been next for him? I hope a shower, (laughs) a shower, a shave, just, just clean himself. Yeah, that would be, that would be, that would be good for him. He's always disheveled and looks like he hasn't, uh, slept, eaten, uh, or cleaned himself lately. So yes, uh, I mean, Clive Owen's a good looking guy, but they go out of their way to make him not like disheveled all the time. So he's always on edge, which I like that. I like that notion of the obsessed investigator who's letting all else in life go except for this one thing. And it's, it's again, gone well beyond a passion or being good at your job. It's obsession. Well, and if you look at Clive Owen, I mean, he was very, he was cast very aptly for this piece, because if you look at him in Children of Men or Shoot Him Up or Derailed, I mean... He plays this character very well. It uh, he he said of his role though he said discussing the film's relevance it ultimately does ask questions about whether banks use people's money appropriately or if they're completely sound institutions and I thought that was kind of an interesting thing because this movie comes out in two thousand nine we're coming off of the heels of the financial crisis the mortgage mortgage lending crisis where um, a lot of loans were I guess defaulting and these banks were giving out loans subprime loans to people and it was all coming to a day of reckoning with them and as well as you know the detroit big three were struggling as well and this was a time of like the the financial markets around the world not just in america were were definitely tanking out it was a hard time to come out of college i came out in 2008 and getting a job in architecture was extremely hard i had over 248 applications out before and i got two interviews out of that like it was really a difficult time for the economy and I thought that was an interesting thing that this movie has the subject matter of what are banks doing with your money? Because at this point in history, there's a lot of distrust of banks starting to emerge. And it's very much definitely the right time to have this happen. It seems strange that it didn't do all that well, considering how well it hits that nail on the head there. I got to ask, though, I mean, what made this fail so bad? Do you think it's just Clive Owen and Naomi Watts don't draw people to the box office as much as you know had it been brad pitt and angelina jolie or something i will say i think that the leading this movie for me it's not very charismatic it may be accurate and it may fit tonally what the movie's going for but it doesn't have a lot of fantasy to it and even though this is a big budget action movie that's epic and it's got some pretty spectacular action scenes Everything in the middle, it's pretty evenly acted. There's no big emotional outbursts, really. There's just people who get into an obsession and who keep pushing forward and keep pushing forward. And there isn't a lot of charisma. And I don't know how much that's the leads, how much it's the writing, how much it's the directing, but that is something that I feel drags this movie down. That's all fair, but I... I... I don't know. I figured like that's the sort of thing that you might discover once you see the movie, but maybe just reviews and stuff like that. Like I said, I saw, I wanted to see this movie when I saw the the trailer. Having said that, and I guess I just didn't get out and see the movie, so I'm guilty of having not gone to see it myself. But I, I'm 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 a little curious to see how it only made about half of what it cost to make this movie in its initial domestic run. So um, just just curious about that. So Brian, why do you think this movie didn't get more attention and get more money? This is an easy movie to bury, especially when you have things like Avatar coming out, where if this is a big budget movie. That was a Leviathan budget movie. 
And uh, a couple of keywords here that Nathan pointed out that I really want to bring back is this isn't fantasy. This is showing people why things are as bad as they were at the time. And it's an easy movie to dismiss and bury because, you know, it's not an uplifting movie. It doesn't have a happy ending. It's not something that take people out of their lives. It puts their lives right back in their face. So it's it. This this movie specifically was a victim of timeliness. I think if this movie had come out at a different time and different things were happening than what was happening back in 2009, I think that it would have had a better showing. And uh, that's it's just an unfortunate thing. It happens to movies all the time. And yeah, I, I just think that it was it was a victim of of its topic and when it was released. I think the topic is the right time for this. I, maybe if it had just been more action. Like, Born, Born was so hot right now, maybe people needed to have, you know, Liam Neeson and Taken or, J, or Matt Damon and Jason Bourne. You know, Clive Owen in a more realistic investigating type of movie might not be as glamorous. All of those are altruistic, basically superhero movies with a positive ending. Right. And that's what I'm saying. Maybe, quite simply, that's what people wanted and why they didn't show up for this. No, no, that's my point. Yeah. It's like this is, you know, people needed to be uplifted. They needed to like feel good after they see a movie. And I'm not, look, like I, I find this movie very rewatchable. So I'm not affected by a negativity piece here. It's just a good suspense story. And I love the uh, ambiance of this film. So, you know, I, I don't think that's something that everyone is looking for. Yeah, for the audience here, let's be clear. We're attempting to find excuses for why this movie didn't go well, but I think we all liked it. Yeah, I had a good time. And I mean, I, I think it it's close enough to a real thing. Like I said, this is inspired by the B, the BCCI and this uh, Bank of Credit Commerce International banking scandal took place in the early 80s and early 90s. And there was an influence from a murder of Robert Roberto Calvi, an alleged banker, and the, like the Sicilian Mafia in London in 82, these assassinations and poisonings of uh, Georgi Markov in London in 78, there are, there are seeds of these types of things that have happened. And we go on and we forget about them. And I think it's cool to make a movie like this. It is entertaining, yes, but I think Clive Owen made a good point when he says it does ask questions of our banks using your money appropriately. And that's an actually insightful thing to take away. Yes, we've been entertained, but uh, I actually appreciate that there's some rooting into something like Nathan said it's not necessarily the most thought provoking movie, but that that's more than a normal run of the mill action movie is going to leave you with. Yeah. And it, it's look, this is not something like like, you know, we were talking before the podcast that, you know, it's difficult to find um, commentary of substance on this film on the Internet. And I really do think this film was greatly buried. A lot of people just out. I wouldn't be surprised if people dismissed it without even, you know, trying to watch it. Um, this movie has depth that you have to. I mean, we watched it with an eye for a podcast and I watched a lot anyway. So if if you're willing, this movie has a lot more to offer than really, I think, most people gave it a chance for. I would agree with that. And I do. I do also agree with what Nathan said, too. Probably I won't come back to it as often as you are, Brian, because the main character is very angry and there's this there's no warmth in in him. Naomi Watts character has moments of kindness in her, but uh, he is so buried in this obsession and they don't necessarily focus that obsession as much um, as 
say, hmm, I'm trying to think of another movie that, where that takes place. But let me say something like, uh, like when we covered L.A. Confidential, like there's this real passion fire that's like behind, you know, this that case would strike a chord in Russell Crowe's character. And he was like, you know, ready to fight about it. Like he was just so passionately driven by his motivations in this. And we don't necessarily get into the head of Agent Salinger that we understand what is driving him so much on this. What is it that makes this his white whale and that his obsession is driving him on this one? And again, having moments of human connection doesn't come through. So uh, there's a lot of cloudy weather in this one and there's a lot of cold environments. And perhaps tonally, as Nathan said, it's not the most charismatic movie, but I just I'm thinking that that's what's going to keep me from returning to it as often. But again, I mean, it's got a great shootout in the Guggenheim. I mean, like there there are some really <laughs> high points in this movie, and I can't believe we got this far into it without talking about it. I mean, that's an amazing sequence. It, it cracks me up a little bit. We, we were off mic for this, but I was talking about how my wife said this is such a quintessentially me movie. And people have made these observations about me for a long time. And I just I do end up being a creature of habit. Give me that blue tone filter. Give me that colder film. Like when they remade uh, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, I ate that movie up. That like with the exception of one scene that is incredibly difficult to watch. Oh, yeah. Um, that movie's awesome. Yeah, I, I freaking love it. So uh, that mixed with the soundtrack. So this is my kind of movie. It's the slow burn with periodic exclamation points it's the uh i had a a barista one time that worked for me that said you like drinks that kind of hurt you a little bit (laughs) because because i i drink my coffee black i drink you know kombucha stuff like that he's like everything you drink it's just it kind of hurts you a little bit huh (laughs) so it's uh yeah it is a it's a habit movie for me i do enjoy the technique that was used to make this it is something that draws me to it yeah yeah and i gotta say though this movie for me uh it's it's got it's running it's building it's building it's building it builds up to this amazing climax scene of the shootout and the guggenheim and this is really a very good action scene i mean oh yeah i i was more into an investigating mode and once we started getting into that i was just like whoa i didn't realize this movie had that up its sleeve yeah that's i mean it's that is one of the best action sequences I've ever seen. It's amazing. And architecturally speaking, it's like, how has this never occurred to anybody? It's a spiral ramp to have a shootout. They get up to the top and it and it builds the, the scene. They walk up, see everything. You are seeing at all times the entire environment in which they're going to have to run through. And it's so open and yet it's just amazing. I think Frank Lloyd Wright would approve of it too because he designed the walls tilted, not on purpose, but like he had a great form in mind but it was pointed out to him like by people who curate museums like the space is actually pretty hard to hang paintings in and it's not great for displaying art and he he shrugged his shoulders and just kind of said i mean it's a fine place to display your finger paintings but i mean we got to give them something to look at so i mean uh he didn't franklin wright really didn't like modern abstract art he liked his japanese prints and stuff like that which is kind of funny because wright is in so many ways is a renegade and uh an amazing uh pioneer of architecture but when it came to the art world like that wasn't what excited him and i i would think that he'd be like you know what these finger paintings as he called them his words not mine you know what 
let's test it. I like the shootout better than the artwork that's in it. I, I could see him approving that. I absolutely love the geometry of that shootout. Like in a normal shootout, you have cover, you have, you know, it's very one dimension. That was such a three dimensional shootout with, you know, guys above, guys below. Your cover's not really cover if they're looking down on you. How the, you know, the main assassin ends up getting hit was the angle was just right. When he shoots the, the glass chandelier and it falls, death by angles. I, every part of how they filmed that, how they utilized that space, obviously it wasn't the real Guggenheim, but um, all of what they did there was such a artistically engrossing firefight. And leading up to it, too, like the art piece in the middle is so well designed. It has openings through it that you can look through and ways to hide and places where you can see the shadows of people who are on the other side. And it's so, the reflections, it's so tense. Yep, they even use the elevator lobbies beautifully. I mean, they use, they use like you said, Brian, the floor plan of that building was looked at, considered. And not only that, I, I mean, I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but they built a life-size replica in a German train station to be able to shoot this movie. Because surprisingly, the New York Guggenheim didn't want them to come in and just shoot automatic guns everywhere and tear up the place. Oddly enough, I know, right? I mean... They, they did shoot, before they shot it up, they did shoot some of it in the real New York, like coming into the building. So it's not totally devoid of real New York uh, uh, shots. But I mean, this this set took 10 weeks to build and it is an ambitious set design piece. And, you know, it's just an amazing thing. It's a 118 foot wide life-size replica. And what a what a ambitious undertaking. Yeah. And mix it then with, there's some computer generated imagery and that the chandelier itself is a CGI artifact for 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 the scene it's and and it's utterly convincing as it falls yeah yeah it's not something you know it's not matrix 3 like it doesn't look like a fake chandelier when it falls not at all it, it looks legit which is impressive even for 2009 i think it's funny that that's where you reach to for bad cgi i always reach farther back for i like i always go for like spawn or like um like blade blade 2 or something like that like these are where i go for like bad cgi <laughs> I, I i agree with the blade 2 i can think the of the ps2 one. man fight scene yeah man that one of him on the roof fighting all the the smith is just the worst like they really i almost want an issued apology for <laughs> like like i they owe it to the movie franchise and they owe it to themselves to apologize for how crappy that cgi scene was so what should the matrix movie start out with an opening monologue of people apologizing for what happened to the previous movie <laughs> I think the new Matrix movie should at least have one joke addressing whatever intern they had working that day. It was a glitch in the Matrix, Brian. Um, so, but one of the things that a scene this amazing and this high octane does is it does lead you to sit there and go like, holy crap, I didn't realize we're building up to this kind of movie. There's a lot, there's a fair bit of movie after that. <laughs> the whole part yeah. where they, the whole part where like he catches Wilhelm Wexler and uh, the interrogation scene comes after that. He, he kind of goes rogue. He goes to Turkey. Then they're playing a whole nother sleuthing game. And to your point, Brian, it kind of feels like, wait, are we in the second movie of a, of a series of movies at this point? And it comes to this very abrupt 
ending. It like I just felt like it hit me really, really hard. He's faced with a moral dilemma of am I gonna shoot or not? And I can't say that he made up his mind. I don't like how they shot this. I want him to just put the gun away and like turn his back, but I feel like he gets bailed out by another hitman coming up and shooting him before he's really made to make the choice of do I pull the trigger or not. I almost would rather him have pulled the trigger or like I said, completely just like, you know, like punch him in the face and like walk away. Like I think that it was enough for him at the time. The reason I this is my rationale for why he wouldn't have pulled the trick. I know they left it ambiguous enough that you don't know if he would have done it or not. He was thinking about it. He was is, thinking about it. Yeah, but my my point was it was enough to see this Goliath groveling to Dave that he got the the piece that he needed to not shoot him. I think that's that's how that ultimately would have culminated in his head. I, I think you're right, but I like I just feel like I want a little more definition there. I, I just feel like the, the character transformation that's happening very back into this movie because it's not been a gradual transformation of the character like it's very much last minute transformation of the main character um it's like you said it's a little ambiguous and maybe maybe i'm asking to just hit it over the nose but i feel like there's a more dramatic way to finish this movie and um just seeing these headlines rolling and stuff like that i've just felt like this movie just hit me like oh are we are we done like can i offer you guys just a, a weird tangent avenue on this have you ever felt more sympathetic for an arms dealer than when the dad gets shot because they showed you his family that was a distinct motion that made you say that so um, no, I'm just saying, no, he was willing to talk, though. Obviously, he's not playing some political game. This guy's running for prime minister of Italy. He's willing to sit down with these two people going pseudo-rogue, talk about the inner workings of his business of dealing arms. He gives them basically what they're looking for on the IBBC, which is, you know, obviously a, a risky thing. The guy seems like an honestly good guy. But in the end, you have to remind yourself, this guy is an arms dealer. And he raised two sons that end up killing off the entire hierarchy of a bank in the end. So it rewinds and being like, oh, man, I, I felt really bad for that guy who just got shot. But if I think about it, there is a bunch of shade there, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, this movie makes an, it makes a lot of an attempt to show that the villains of it are as trapped in the system and forced along by the flywheel of fate as anybody else in the movie that i mean they have that hilarious zoom meeting scene where the 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 dad calls out to his son so we're trapped in a corner little guy what have i always taught you you do when you're trapped in a corner (laughs) oh but see it wasn't even it wasn't even that explicit he didn't say you're trapped in a corner he goes well you know what do you do when there's no way out oh yeah yeah at trying to cheat teach him uh, chinese chess and the son's just like well you find a way deeper in and you're just like (laughs) okay hitler like (laughs) good job little hitler and you're just like oh my god you know this is a reciprocal thing that's going down through a (laughs) through a bloodline generations and generations of people being progressively taught crazier and crazier ideals right so i know i but this is one of the things that i love about this movie is everybody in this movie is morally compromised and the movie itself is showing you moral ambiguity yes yes that's a good yes there is moral ambiguity that is and i maybe people don't want that i mean it's interesting i was looking at it a little closer and originally this movie was scheduled for release in 2008 in august so like they they got bad test audiences and they went back and reshot parts of it and they tried to focus more on the action probably playing up the guggenheim a little bit more 
and they've released it in February of 2009. And obviously, it still didn't pay high dividends for them. But it's kind of weird. Like, they had this forewarning, like, uh oh, like, this isn't working. Let's go back to the kitchen a little bit, see if we can fix it. Let's put some more icing on it. And um, it's interesting. It's one of those things where I'm still not clear. Clearly, we weren't in their test audiences. Uh, again, it's a different time. And when you talk about test audiences, I mean, we're guys who have who voluntarily do a movie podcast. Like this is in all regards our wheelhouse. So when they're doing these test audiences, it's Dave from Subway. It's, you know, Jill from the CPA's office. You know, it's not us. So we can take and we're literally watching this with the eye to take details to talk about when we're dismantling the movie. So I can completely understand how, you know, Sam from off the street comes in and watches this movie and he's like, why did I just waste time on that? But I think that is also something that lures me to a movie like this because it is greatly underrated and unappreciated. And you find a gem like this and you just got to talk about it. I think Tom Tyker, the director, just was really good at building that sense of paranoia, tense, quiet moments moments and he just had an amazing knack for the aesthetic of this movie i'll be honest with you maybe if i were watching this movie in the hands of a less skilled director i don't know that maybe i will find it as interesting but boy the globe trotting they did we mentioned this uh when we talk about james bond throughout our james bond episodes in the past but it's true of other movies as well i mean if you take me on these exotic locations then i think that that's going to draw me in and i think that there's there's something the style of this movie is really good it has good lighting it has good moments of how like you feel like they make you feel the feelings and they put you in these amazing locations and they don't just put you in a good set like they really thought carefully about how they use their cameras to shoot their surround and they picked amazing location movies so i just got to give them so much credit for that i mean maybe nathan and i are being swayed more easily than the other 70 percent of the rotten tomatoes crowd who didn't like this movie because maybe they're just maybe that thing for me is there yeah and i mean hey i my one real personal criticism of this movie is that the other half of me the music half of me is pretty sure that this movie isn't just lacking some character in how its characters work but its music is really not giving me a lot to work with it's mostly just sort of generic quiet almost trying to duplicate the born series kind of music but without that level of that was generous finesse oh I'll, I'll, I'm, I'm they spent I'm, all their money at making a fake guggenheim i was gonna i was gonna say they didn't they did not uh they did not any come anywhere near as uh the, the born soundtrack on and that for me on that one but uh yeah i guess i guess what i mean is it sounds like they tried to duplicate it but didn't actually provide any anywhere near the effort that would actually be required so they ended up with like this little piano ditty at the beginning and the end that feels like it was maybe something that could have been a seed to go somewhere but they never go anywhere with anything i honestly thought it sounded like a tv investigation file and it was really funny that they read that the score from this film is regularly used by german public television stations of which i'm not familiar with and documentaries to invest in investigative journalism so like makes sense so like they jacked they jacked this to to uh to do what we we're talking about but it is one of those things where it's just like this feels like you know what you see like when you watch like i don't know cold case files or something like that gotta make that money back somehow <laughs> I, I understand i understand from from nathan's point of view how that's like a, a 
integral part of what he looks for in movies. But, you know, I'm a huge music fan, but until you mentioned it, I don't think I've ever thought once about the music in this movie. And I'm not sure if you need to necessarily. But he's asking, is that a problem? Because it has the ability to make you feel their feelings more. Yeah. Because so so here's the thing about this movie for me. It took me almost 20 minutes into the first watch to figure out what I thought they were saying our main character's name was. And I was wondering for a while if they were going for a thing where they were deliberately not saying his name. And they were so there was so little character to anybody. It was generic banker guy. It was generic investigator guy. Generic scene with someone who might be mob related in a car doing something and he has a cigarette in his mouth. It was so generic and I was feeling like maybe this is a thing they were going for, but if they were if they would do something as simple as like cherry pick some classical scores or something, get some like Carl Orff stuff in there to like make it sort of give some of these characters like an over-the-top score in the background to underscore things. I, I feel like you could inject a lot of character without sacrificing the plotting and sort of realism purity that the rest of this movie has. So during the investigation assassination cover-up scene where the crooked investigators go in and doctor the, the crime scene and everything's being, uh, you know, uh, skewed to look a certain way, Nathan wants to hear... Sorry. I do think that... Look, I mean, it'd have to be something I'd have to hear and reassess as a fix, but... I felt like the severity, the the minimalism that they used in this movie um, all led to the David versus Goliath attitude that you have from this guy trying to take on something that's much bigger than him. So could there be filler? Absolutely. May it improve it? Possibly. Did they do it on purpose the way they did it? Probably. Yeah, I'm sure they did it. It, it was very perf- purposeful. It was it was really stylized, but uh, I'm with Bjark Engels on this one. Less is a bore for this particular movie in the music anyway. So, but uh, it's interesting though, this, this, this screenplay was written by Eric Warren Singer and he had developed an interest in banking scandals that led him to write this, you know, thriller vibe piece. And the other thing that influenced him was The Godfather 3 was really the only film up to this point that he felt like was dealing with bank scandals. So he felt like it was a gangster warfare played at the corporate level. And for him, that was the best part of this film. And I do think that that was creative. And I'm sad that this movie didn't get rewarded for it. Here I am playing the defender again. Well, I definitely appreciate it. I mean, this is, like I said, you're not going to hear any negative uh, really things uh, from me. Uh, I struggled a lot with the change one thing. Um, it's it's an experience as a whole, and I have a hard time uh, taking it apart in any real meaningful way to to augment that perception because the perception is one of the things I like. Uh, that being said, you know you'll rarely hear me arguing for things like less music or um, you know a change of of. Uh, tone so i don't know i just uh i like it the way it is some reviewers said that this movie related to parallax view from 74 all the president's men in 76 and that this movie because these events that it's rooted in happen in the 80s and 90s why not set it then and then director tom tykwer said uh, and i think it's tykwer it might be tykwer i don't know um tom tykwer uh said that he decided to make this a contemporary setting and that this would just look better, feel more tense. And, you know, it, it seems fresher, if you will, just 
to put it in today's times. And do you feel like this was a good thing, Nathan? Do you want it set in this 70s paranoia pictures and to put it back where it kind of maybe feels like that kind of thriller might be? Or did you like it set now in 2009? Hey, you know, I just complained that the music was underdoing it. But another thing that was very minimal in this movie was any attempt to be over the top with gadgetry or anything silly that would make it feel out of place. Because this movie, it could very well be set today as much as it was set in the you know late 2000s. The feeling that it gives, I don't think has dimmed. I, I It feels like a very contemporary thing. And yeah, you could definitely benefit from period piece energy in a lot of ways, but I don't know if the world was necessarily ready to start doing 80s uh, thrillers at the time. Yeah. I just feel like, I feel like this movie, again, has a sense of the nature of the tech world, it shrank, I, I should say, the internet and those advances shrank the world. Everything was being played at a global stakes. So the fact that a bank would be maneuvering and, and positioning itself for financial gain around the world seems ultra more relevant in today's times. And I think that they wanted to have that, you know, sense of believability and cautionary tale in there while making a good thrilling plot. And obviously there's a lot more at stake. Um, and it seems like the world is the playing field. And I feel like updating it to that is is solid. You know, I think that what I would have said had I been to the had I been the director and someone had asked, you know, why not make it a period piece over, you know, the seventies or eighties or something right now, or instead of right now, I would have replied, because this is happening right now. Like as we're talking, there's a bank out there doing this. That's how I would have replied to that. I will say that the, another thing that Tom Tyker is doing, he's making you unsettled throughout this movie. There's panning, there's blurring of foreground background a lot. So it's not just a stylistic thing to focus on who's talking. It has a vibrancy and it's lighting of its scene. So it's not using a lot of shadows and darkness per se. Uh, however, the camera is being used in a way to make you unsettled. Now, I'm not going as far as, say, like The Exorcist, where they're like literally zooming in and out, moving the camera constantly to really put you on edge. But at a much smaller scale, they are doing things to intentionally put you on edge. And uh, as a modernist at heart, this does make me a little bit sad, but I do know that really modern architecture that's often minimal in nature obviously can be signs of like high tech or being advanced or having status which these people clearly these villains are super status like they have all the money in the world but they also use it in movies particularly horror movies to make the layman or the regular guy walking around the street feel uncomfortable because it's an environment unlike what they're familiar with it's an exceptional environment that i want the rest of the world to look that way but um it's could be a choice to use this kind of architecture to again make you feel unsettled i hope that's not true oh man I want to talk about how wonderful this movie is about using architecture to accent scene depth. There are so many scenes in this movie where you have somebody who's talking who's in the extreme foreground near near the camera, and then you have the person they're talking to, and behind them is maybe somebody that the camera is carefully, very subtly moving to keep in frame, and then because they're in a room of modern architecture, there's this paranoid feeling of how open everything is. So, for example, 
the bank scene, one of the early one of the early ones when Salinger goes to confront them about thinking that they had that he maybe had some proof that they'd done something to kill their lead. He goes in and he's in a room talking to this guy and they're in the foreground, but behind them there's a guy just lounging in the background, creepily behind his neck, just watching there. And the camera always keeps him in, in view. But then behind the glass, there's a whole office of underlings, villain bank underlings who are there also watching, and then the city behind even that. There's the opening scene of the movie when Salinger's partner gets offed, and he gets bumped by this guy and then walks some distance, and you have several layers of depth and foreground, but the camera always keeps the assassin just at the right of the frame, but he's dressed so subtly that it's obvious how he could be missed. Um, it, it happens throughout the movie. The Guggenheim scene, same thing all about depth and it's amazing i i couldn't possibly agree with you more i'll also say that one of the things that i really liked about it i'll also say that one of the things i really liked about it was the fact that um all of the architecture seemed to enhance that david and goliath feel that you have him walking alone into the vw autostop you had you know the political rally where he's sitting at a coffee shop with pirelli tower just looming over him so they use the architecture, the grandiose nature of it to basically overshadow and just dominate this guy. And it's a microcosm of what he's trying to do for this or against this bank. The bank's got nothing on the Calvinis, though. The Calvinis, not only do they have a relocated Zaha Hadid building in the Fino Science Center, but they have a murder tunnel. Where <laughs> that's, that's probably the funniest scene in the movie for me, actually, is when... <laughs> The bankers drive into one end of the tunnel, but they don't come out the other. Oh, I love that, too, with him, like, looking at it. He's like, they know. And he's, like, giving eyes to the driver and stuff. And you're like, this man dead. Like, how are you going to get into it? Like, you just got kicked out of this business meeting with a bunch of very scary looking men and you got into a car where you don't know the driver. Like, that's that's bad guy banking 101. (laughs) <laughs> yeah it's uh but uh you know i don't want to go too deep into this so i'll be brief but uh this movie is a who's who and a where's where of like buildings at the end of the 2000s i mean this has the amazing train station in berlin the main station there that looks amazing in the beginning of the movie the bad guys uh the bad the evil bankers have an amazing headquarters that they're located in. that's a helmet yawn building in berlin called new kranzlerek uh, that's the Zaha Deed Museum that they changed the background. They relocated onto the coast, but that's just a building in Germany in Molsberg. And that's next to the VW Autostadt campus, of which many of those buildings are on there, as Brian mentioned. You have the iconic Guggenheim, which they, they definitely worked very hard at to show. But in Milan, they did an amazing job of showing their concert hall, which is a historic piece of architecture right next to the Pirelli Tower by uh, Pier, uh, Pierluigi Nervi. Like, this is an iconic structure and uh what a great space they really used that italian area well and then they went to uh turkey at istanbul and they used hagia sophia which is one of those ancient wonders of the world it's just really cool and then they went to the grand bazaar in istanbul too and it's interesting skyfall which is a very stylish ambitious movie kind of took a lot of that istanbul scene for itself now james bond one-ups it as by driving all over the roofs on a motorcycle in istanbul but i i have a feeling when they were spotting where to shoot skyfall it's possible maybe this movie led them to the, go there maybe. but anyway this is 
an amazing set. Not normally do you have a movie that has all of these. These are high quality, real spaces by big name architects. And it is historic architecture of quality. It's really brand new cutting edge architecture of quality. And man, if the whole world looked this good, that would be just great. And also the Interpol headquarters is really awesome too that they put that in here too. So um, just a really great job picking their environments. I gushed in Gattaca over all the great architecture they had in this one. This this does it at an even larger scale. They pick more buildings. And the scenes that aren't necessarily specific landmark buildings, like they have a lot of great urban fabric. The the car chase scene through, I believe that was Italy, right? That was that was awesome. That was really good. And I just, this movie the, has nothing but great environments with the exception of when they go to a doctor's office in New York City. <laughs> that, that guy, I'll tell you what, that, that might have been the only humor in this movie was that doctor. I think there was one attempt at a sex joke. Just one. Oh, what the, why are you offering? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so this is one of the things that I've always really loved about Clive Owen is you are really hard pressed to find this man in a comedy. Uh, they straight up made an action comedy called Shoot 'Em Up for him to play in an action comedy. And he is stoic the entire movie. <laughs> he's actually, not he's not that funny. They that. use his no. They actually use his stoicism as the as the comedy it, it was amazing i went to see it in college with a friend of mine we laughed so hard during the entire movie and the whole movie clive owen is being clive owen but it's how they wrote the movie for him to be that way that made it funny so it was if you haven't seen that one it's definitely worth it too it's hilarious yeah and the again they extend this into the thoughtful placemaking into a thoughtful wardrobe salinger looks like a wreck all the time his collar's undone his looks disheveled and you know his coat's you know kind of baggy and like you know appearance is not his thing he's very unshaven and he's contrasted by these bankers who are exquisitely dressed and uh you know they are they're almost almost as stylish as the rooms that they are inhabiting even when sometimes that room is like a police a policeman's house murder basement right i always wondered like what it would be like to be like shopping for houses and have your realtor be like okay and this room's got a lot of soundproofing and there's no there's no natural light in the basement so you can make a lot of noise you know what i mean like you can see nothing you you really can see nothing nothing and the the windows that there are they've been spray painted over so many times you would have to have like new ones put in and it's really really great the entire the entire room has been painted with a really easily cleanable material. There's a floor drain. Perfect. It is. And and the garage is not visible from the street when you drive in. So, I mean, every aspect of this room, I just want to emphasize, is well considered for your needs, if you know what I mean. So just thought you would appreciate, you know, this room. <laughs> it's like, I feel uncomfortable and I would like to shop at another house now, please. And I want another, re- and I want another realtor. Have I mentioned the tunnel? Have I mentioned the tunnel yet? <laughs> if you use the sink, be careful because it's not actually water. It is uh, anti. It's bleach. It's just it's pure bleach. If you turn on that faucet. <laughs> Enjoyable tangents. Yes. Uh, you know, it's it's interesting. This movie has. Uh, Special effects, they go to work real hard in really isolated moments. So much of this is real location shooting. But, you know, the sniper scene in particular, as they're tracing through the angles of the shot, which, by the way, I loved the breaking down of that scene 
of what was going on and that like I was really into that Italian assassination part of the story. And, you know, again, the Guggenheim is a special effects beast, uh, including a dead body that's shot off the Guggenheim balcony that falls down, hits one of the ledges and very realistically like flops down and like was like, oh, somebody put a lot of thought like that. That's a heavy task to send some digital animator for like, you know, two months to walk around. I need you to think about how this guy's going to fall three floors and then fall to his death. Yeah, you know, I was, I was wondering after this movie, there are not a lot of scenes in this movie that make it really an R movie, an R-rated movie. And the Guggenheim scene is hyper-violent, hyper-bloody, awesome blood squirts everywhere, people flopping to the ground, getting crushed by chandeliers very realistically. Right. But I've, I was wondering, you know, like, born is pg-13 a movie like this normally has like a big steamy sex scene in there you're right like there's no there's no love interest sex scene in this or anything like that i i definitely think that this is unduly r i think that they're if you had a mastercard logo this would definitely be on the the in the gray scale between the two uh in terms of of actually getting that r rating um it it actually made me wonder at one point i know there's some language in it which is probably it's leading you know spearhead i think it's the guggenheim that gets at the r but here's the thing i i feel like i could almost see them asking for an r rating for this based on that doesn't generally help you gross more the box mistake yeah Yeah. i was gonna say that like i mean if uh, i mean you could write the though, squirt scene. This I movie is not made for thirteen-year-old. Makes a lot of money. I was gonna say this movie is not made for twelve-year-old boys. In fairness, like to Brian's point, because it's not Mission Impossible. It's not Mission Impossible. It globetrots like it's Mission Impossible or Born, and this is probably why it didn't make money because it's not made for thirteen-year-old boys. Right, and I, that, that's I think that's really getting to my point. I don't think anybody would ever ask for something that's going to make it less money, but I do think that there is a point to be made by saying, look. You know, this is going to go over a certain age range's head and we'll do just enough to earn it in a way. But no, I've seen PG-13 movies far worse than that. Yeah. Far worse. Yeah. Yeah. That's a very good point. Um, do you guys want to hand out some superlatives? Let's do it. All right. MVP. Brian, you love this movie so much. I want to give you the driver's seat on this one. Who's your MVP of the international? He's not my favorite character in it, but I gave it to Clive Owen because you, I, I just don't think that you can do Obsessed the way that Clive Owen does Obsessed. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Now, uh, uh, Nathan, what about you? Uh, who is your MVP? I've said before, I love the direction of this movie. Director Tom Teichver, amazing. Just amazing. Yep. He's awesome. And I was teeter tottering between him and screenplay writer Eric Warren Singer. So since you went with Tom Teichver, I will probably go with Eric Warren Singer on this one, just because it's this would be a good book, to Brian's point. Like, just simply the sequencing of the investigation, the, the very concept of what we're watching is really compelling. And to Nathan's point, they put beautiful imagery and just handled the mood of it so great. Um, to me, it's interesting Brian took Clive Owen. To me, the weak point of this movie, I'm sorry, Nathan, it's not the, it's not, not I'm not going to pick on the regular humdrum TV investigative soundtrack that they have. Um, I'm going to pick on the, I think the cast is probably the weakest link in this. So I do, I do. I just, I, I don't know. I just felt like uh, so many other parts of this are working and I felt like maybe that, the, maybe this is where the movie just didn't connect for people is, are some of the portrayals of it though. But anyway, best supporting actor brian uh i went with armin mueller stall he is one of those people um i love this guy i 
will generally watch anything with him in it. It started in 1997's 12 Angry Men. And he's the old communist, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, he was uh, he was in the remake with Jack Lemmon, and that's the first place where I saw him, and I was like, oh, this guy's awesome. Uh, he was also in movies like The Game, which is also one of my huge, huge favorites. The Peacemaker, the X-Files movie, the first one, uh, Eastern Promises, and then this. So uh, he's just one of those guys, his accent and how he plays the part of that, you know, aging uh, Eastern European personality. uh, He's just a favorite of mine. Very good choice there. Now, Nathan, best supporting actor. I am absolutely with you on that, Brian. Armin Mueller-Stahl is excellent as as Wilhelm Wexler. Uh, That that scene in the murder basement is... uh, the gravitas that makes this movie. I, I think my favorite part of that scene is his, can I call it amusement? I feel like he has almost amusement on his face as he talks to Salinger. Like, you're trying to intimidate me. Do you think this is the first time I've been in a murder basement? Hey, do you think that Wexler is where Salinger is going in the future after this crazy no. failure? No, I don't think so. Oh, no, no, I... I no, actually, I've, I've, I've got a thing to say about this, but I need quote first. Okay. All right. Yeah. yeah. I just find it so interesting because I, I wonder if that's kind of the point they're trying to make there because he... Parallel is not wrong. There's, there's, there, they give this long speech about this ex-communist and why are you working for the bank? Hmm. Yeah, I, I don't know about the. Maybe it's just maybe, maybe I don't like that, but I don't see that. But uh, maybe. Oh yeah, it's a, it's a hateable thing. Not, I'm not saying that they end up doing the same thing, but let's get to to best quote, and I will go further in. What a tease! Brian has lately been teasing to go further into the superlatives. I like that. He really keeps the listener at the edge of their seat, much like Tom Tykver. Um, so my best supporting actor, I'm going to go in a different direction. I'm going to go with Patrick Bellotti. He plays Martin White, the slimy lawyer guy from early in the movie. I I think he's so good at being slimy. Yep, agreed. I don't think I've ever seen that guy play anything less than a slimy person. Like, I feel like if you're familiar with like Slimer from the Ghostbusters movie, like how he leaves a trail of slime everywhere. My this, mind went right there. <laughs> this is that guy. Like, he's, he's dressed impeccably, but slime everywhere. <laughs> hidden gem, Brian. Um, my hidden gem for this, and it's not hidden, it's everywhere, is the architecture. Like, when you pick this film, I was so excited for you because I was like, oh, this is... I I tend to pick underappreciated movies for my dealer's choice, and I knew how much you would appreciate the scenery in this film. So I was like, yes, yes. But I don't think that outside of the occasional nod or if you look up the movie on IMDb or something, anyone ever talked about it. So, yeah, I do think it's a hidden gem for those who haven't seen it. Nathan, hidden gem. You know what? I actually also put down the architecture here because how can you not? But actually, I'm going to bring up another object here, which is uh, I'm going to say glass in this movie because... I mentioned before it's it's used to make a lot of points about paranoia and always being watched all the time. But I, I, I realize the more I think about this movie, how much it seems to be about how in the modern era, transparency in this movie is used as a shield. This is an investor, an investigator who is allowed to go anywhere, talk to anybody. He's not picked out of meetings. He's allowed to talk to the bankers. Of course, they're open. They've got a folder that proves exactly how innocent they are because they just had it cleared with the city. You can you can go anywhere it's all fine no it's a really great yeah that's a very good way of putting it and i'm 
going on very similar note to both of you guys, the hidden gem is the best of the old and the and the best of the new. There's a lot of really great new spaces in here, and there's a lot of really great old spaces in here. So anytime you're using the Milan Symphony Hall, whether you're using the uh, Hagia Sophia and the Grand Bazaar, like they used old sites well, they used old streets of Italy well, and they had these amazingly great modern pieces set in it. So mine's the architecture as well, but to me, I just want to say whoever picked the location of this movie did a really good job and should be hired forever, just uh, movie after movie for picking locations because they know what they're doing. If you guys do get a chance, and I'm sure you can buy it online for less than $5. And I'm not talking about download. Like, you have to get a physical copy. The commentary on this DVD is actually pretty good. Uh, my only knock on it is I couldn't get the subtitles to work, and they do have a lot of heavy accents with the uh, uh, commentary. So I have actually a couple of my superlatives um, where I had to kind of guess what they were saying, <laughs> and, uh, and and that'll be coming up. But yeah, it this, I mean, I don't think that I have to argue that this movie is worth owning, but if you can snag a used copy of the DVD for, you know, three ninety five on eBay or something, it's totally worth it. Wunderbar! But, uh, sorry, you said they had thick German accents on their commentary. <laughs> but, so. No, it was, it was thick accents all around. They've got a variety of, of European, um, personnel and it, it it was a little difficult to follow best yeah. shot and this was boy if there ever was a hard movie to pick best shot on this was definitely it because it not i mean because it was hard so many good ones brian best shot so this is one of the things in the commentary i couldn't actually tell who the artist or the painting was but they're talking about um the assassin and armin um sitting uh, at that painting in the beginning of the film while they're discussing the uh the shooting of uh, uh the the politician and the painting they're they're looking at depicts agony and death and both would later die so i just felt like that was a great foreshadowing piece and how they u- they used art and architecture in this to to further the plot that's a great choice nathan what about you best shot close to the end of the movie they're driving out at the what is actually the Finos Science Center and they leave the garage and oh my gosh, that garage has super villain lair written all over it. It's just so spectacular. This concrete, crazy, weird verticality in the surfaces and the lighting that they managed to get into this the way that it's done it's just there for like two seconds but awesome the sequence mine mine's going to be the sequencing of shots that they did as he's coming in to try and come face to face with that banker the head banker that he wants to meet and he's headed out of that elevator it's transparency done at its finest like nathan was saying and i'm really glad he pointed that out because this was my point with the best shot um it's also in an amazing helmet yon piece of architecture uh helmet yon's a designer um just an amazing use of that transparency and again this movie like brian said will seem fresh in 30 years because these buildings will still seem cutting edge in 30 years they're that cutting edge so i think that i heard at some point during the uh the commentary for the film that this was the first time they actually allowed them to shoot inside the auto shot really well they should allow it a lot more because it's a great idea like, apparently it was like something that they had petitioned and petitioned and petitioned for 
when they finally agreed just based on the limited access that they would need to shoot the shots they were going for. Huh? Yeah. Interesting. Uh, now recast, if you had to recast somebody and put somebody in place, Brian, who would it be? So I went with the assassin, um, not because I don't like him or that he didn't do a good job. Cause I think he did. Cause he doesn't have enough hair. But, well, every time I see that guy, he reminds me of Stanley Tucci. So I'm just wondering if they had had Stanley Tucci, if it would have popped more. Oh, Stanley Tucci. That was unexpected. I feel like he's too nice for that. Oh dude. He's been a bad guy a lot of stuff i guess i'm i don't know for whatever reason you say stanley tucci and like i don't know why that's just not the the wrong roles are popping into my head right now so yeah um nathan what about you i'm actually going after clive owen i'm uh i i I feel like yeah yeah i i I feel like we need some more charisma we need we need someone who's gonna give a, a a matt damon level of sort of energy to some of these scenes i don't think it needs to be over the top i just want emotion on the face i want a feel of what the panic is this is somebody who's writing on the walls keeping their crazy obsession crime wall up and it feels like they've been bored in an office for a couple of years and uh just coming out so that is that is mine who are you going with? Oh, is, is it Matt Damon? Yeah. Okay, great choice. In, in my defense of Clive Owen in this, I think that they're trying to show someone that has been beaten down and knocked back so many times that all he has left is his obsession. I think lighten the mood of that character, it changes the dynamic of who he's supposed to be representing. But not for I, the worse. Well, that's why that's why I'm picking something someone like Matt Damon, because he's not, he's not doing anything that's lighter. He's just breathing more heavily. He's giving more significant glances. He's physically acting more rather than being such a blank slate. No, I I, I totally got that. Yeah, you don't have to explain it. Matt Damon would be very good for this role. And I was leaning towards recasting Clive Owen, but upon a second watch, Naomi Watts is not right for her role. Like, she's really not right for this role, I don't think. I mean, it's a very strong character who uh, has a lot of backbone and uh, also has caring in her. And I just really didn't think that she was the right one for this role. And I, I thought somebody who would have been she would have been a little bit younger um to bring in but rosara dawson i thought would have been really good for this she does on she does unstoppable she does unstoppable around this time and i just think that i mean unstoppable is a good example of a woman who's just i mean she has a lot of presence in that movie and i think she would kick butt in this role and stand up to those um bureaucrats very well and again show that's you know I mean, we see that in her Marvel uh, cinema or television cinematic universe of the Netflix things when she's a night nurse. So I think that she has all of the shades that you need for this. Uh, I, I think I think I'd plug her in over Naomi Watts, but I, I, I was tempted to go after Clive Owen. <laughs> I could get behind that. Um, best scene. Brian. I mean, how is it not the gunfight at the Guggenheim? It's a straight sweep, probably. <laughs> it's right? a straight sweep. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it. There's not a sequence in this movie that is better than that. It is such an enthralling intense heart pounding and it gets you out of nowhere i mean they really do i know like they're going there to apprehend this guy you do not know that there is an eight person hit squad already there to hit this dude so i mean it's one of those things where this movie has been a very slow burn with only very small exclamation points of that at that point what you didn't realize was the writer of the script leaned on the exclamation point about two-thirds of the way in and did this guggenheim scene i think it's yeah i think three quarters of the way in it, it, it peaked if, if anything it's probably to the film's detriment though because it can never come close to matching that level of energy for the whole rest of the movie like i was kind of sitting there as they were going into Istanbul, like going like 
they got to do something really big here to just like finish this up. I, I'm not, I, I don't need a traditional, the climax has to happen at the end of the movie. Um, I, I don't need that. The, the culmination of it was the, the, the climax, if you will, what we're going to use for climax, if it has to be at the end of the movie is tying up loose end. It's how each person meets their, you know, uh, judgment in the different ways that they meet it and how they tie the movie up. Is it as climactic? No, but it is a conclusion. Going back to my always James Bond bag, if you're going to drive a tank through the streets of Moscow later, you've got to match that energy later by dropping an entire satellite dish on somebody. So. <laughs> um, Nathan, where do you land on that? Like, uh, did, did you did, were you okay with that, or did you feel like it ran ran a little bit out of gas there? Yeah, I think that it sputtered and then got back going. I think that part of the issue for me is that what I would have wanted to see is let's follow Clive as he goes on his little mission here, because there's a scene where he says, "Okay, burn the bridges behind me," and as a first time watcher, I'm sitting there thinking, "What's he gonna do? Is what can he possibly do?" And what he ends up doing at first seems so oh all he did was tell somebody the secret that the bank killed their father that's not all that intense and then it goes to the next scene where there is this very very stressful scene where you're trying to get the evidence and trying to do this other thing it's off the book and all that sort of thing so i feel like it's that intermediate scene that really could have used some sort of help yeah. in uh, a change effective Best wardrobe, Brian. Or makeup. Best wardrobe or makeup. I mean, there are a lot of men in this that wear suits very well. So it's uh, it's something that I actually give a nod to the European style on, on how they do suits. Um, it's it it's fun. Yeah. Any of them in particular you're going for? No, no. Just in general, the the, Yay, the suit game in this is uh, the suits game in this movie is is strong. Yeah, it's very European. If you like color and and stuff uh, in in men's clothing, this is not your movie. So no, it's a it's black, gray, brown, and I'm not even sure navy made it. But maybe uh, would navy pa- maybe not? I don't know that navy is even okay. <laughs> I feel I feel like Oily Lawyer may have had a navy at one point. He did, he did. But I'm just saying uh, that's the most colorful this world's allowed to be. <laughs> Nathan, best wardrobe for you. For me, Wetzler wins the suit contest. The scene where he's in the murder basement and he's giving his talk. Everyone else around him is in like post I just survived a crazy fight scene and I'm covered in blood vibes. And he's just there like he just spent three hours putting himself together in the most perfect way. Like you children, you have no idea what you've walked into. You guys, you guys went back to uh, him again and I went back to my uh, my uh, best supporting as well. I'm with Patrick Bellotti here with Martin White. So good at looking slimy, but he makes it look good. So change one thing, Brian. Uh, my change one thing was like the Quentin Tarantino amount of blood squirting from his ear. <laughs> like barely got grazed in the Guggenheim. Like I just felt like maybe that uh, full on arterial spray for his earlobe where you literally could have been pierced. Did Jessica give her medical opinion on what the proper amount of blood would be for an ear being shot off? It wasn't an ear. It was just the bottom part, man. I mean, I've seen dudes with literally spacers where you could fit a freaking eye bolt through. Like, you're telling me that's going to bleed that much? Anyway, uh, that was the only part that I was like, that took me out of it just a little bit. So, Nathan, change one thing. Like I said earlier, I want some good villain music. Give these guys a soundtrack, some orf, some box, some creepy cello. If you're going to make it big that these are monologuing evil villain guys, I want to lean into that just a little bit more. 
and not so much that it's over the top. I don't want I don't want any uh, carnival music, Russell. I just want something that <laughs> gives me the uh, gives me something to latch onto with some of these characters because they're all they're all basically replaceable, and that's the point. But want something no that that's fair and my change one thing is i don't like detective salinger that uh, has his mind made up for him i mentioned this at the end he's not made to really resolve his moral dilemma that he's had somebody else shoots him for him i don't want somebody else to shoot him for him you know just you can even stop the movie at whether he pulls the trigger or not but i really don't like somebody else bailing him out that's what he does he goes and works for the calvinis maybe so i don't i don't know i think that he's at the i, th- I think he's at the start of the second born movie just like chilling out in greece somewhere like <laughs> you know like hiding and living small like waiting tables in greece that's what i think works or, for me or he's drunk and in a dunkin donuts at 2 a.m really really unkept with like a super long beard and like yelling at the people like none of this matters <laughs> nothing any of us do matters um not that one i hope yeah uh best quote brian all right so i went uh this was actually uh from a from a book but uh used in the movie is uh, sometimes a man can meet his destiny on the road he took to avoid it i love that quote in such a pr- found way and when um gosh armin uses it back at salinger um i just think it's prophetic because you have this cold warrior from the russian bloc who is anti-capitalist going to work for the most capitalist place in the world uh this bank and basically being their muscle because they like that aspect of what he can bring to the table and then you have clive owen following along in a similar path where he was all about justice until justice wouldn't give him what he wanted. And so he goes off book two. And I feel like you are seeing some mirroring on like, I I've seen that look in your eyes. I've had it in mind too. This is, this is how you end in a dark place. That's why I don't think he would have pulled the trigger in the end. That is a pretty good quote. Now, what about you, uh, Nathan? Best quote. Mine is also from that scene. It is just a line. This is the difference between truth and fiction. Fiction is to make sense. And I just like that line a lot for the way that he delivered it, where, you know, maybe maybe he was tracking somebody down and he had this fictional idea in his mind that justice could be had, that justice was a real thing. And in the end, he found out the truth. It didn't all make sense. It was just there. And here he is now. Mine's going to be Wilhelm Wexler as well. Same person, different quote, though. Character is easier kept than recovered. I, I wanted to have him as my MVP so bad, but I felt like he was such a supporting character in this. Like, he's literally a quintessential supporting character in this that, like, he had that MVP, like, wrapped up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, on a five-star scale, half-star intervals, Brian, what would you rate The International from 2009? Well, like I already said, this isn't going to be an Oscar winner for anything. So I gave this a solid four stars. It is truly one of my favorite films. And yeah, four. Nathan, what about you? Hey, you know, I'm actually right there with you, Brian, on four stars. I think that this movie has some incredible direction. It has an all-timer fight scene. And despite my niggles about music and maybe the plot sputters at the end a little bit, I think that it really, it, it really compelling. And I'm right about there with you, only unlike Brian, I do embrace and use half-star intervals, and I, I'm giving this a 3.5. And I, I really love a lot of the style and the craft of this movie is well above what I'm rating it as an overall, but 
to to Nathan's point, the sputtering at the end, as well as a little bit, my, I had some issues with the cast that just maybe these portrayal of these characters. Not only that, maybe you could have gotten some more people in the box office, you know, with Matt Damon and Rosario Dawson, for instance, or you know, pick another two leads. I think that um, this was so good. The screen, the, the script was good. The concept was good, and the director was right. I really think they got a good director on this one. So um, it's 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 hard to get all of that right and still have a little bit of conflict with it. It's just you know, hey, not every movie is a perfect movie and uh 3.5 is still really good i like it and it is really well crafted it's one of the best crafted movies we've done here this year i absolutely um now would you like to help me pick a movie for next time nathan i do wrestle option number one little shop of horrors from 1986 a nerdy florist finds a chance for success and romance with the help of a giant man-eating plant who demands to be fed option two attack of the killer tomatoes from 1978 a group of scientists band together to save the world from a mutated killer tomato strand option three the witches of eastwick from 1987 three single women in a picturesque village have their wishes granted at a cost when a mysterious and flamboyant man arrives in their lives well, Russell, we're going to go with option number one, Little Shop of Horrors from 1986. Well, you said that you had an issue with the soundtrack in this movie. I highly doubt you'll have an issue with the presence of the music and the soundtrack in that. Somehow I don't think so. All right. And Brian, Nathan, thank you so much. Welcome, man. Thanks for having us. And to all the lords, ladies and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable, we invite you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you. So subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. It helps us do better it helps us get more subscribers and other people find the show give us a like on facebook follow us at twitter at at movie underscore retro emails at retro movie roundtable at yahoo.com and producing and providing this podcast is fun but not free so we invite you to support our show at our patreon page at patreon.com forward slash retro movie roundtable any contributions are much appreciated we'll go towards making the show better for you the listeners as always thank you for listening be good to each other and watch more movies brian coming home from lonely places all of us go a little mad whether from great personal success or from an all-night drive, we are the sole survivors of a world no one else has ever seen.